Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. Hello and welcome back, super fans. If you're tuning into this bonus, bonus episode, following on from episode seven, the trial. And as promised, I have a lot more from Pamela Gurley giving evidence. There are 150 pages, as I mentioned before. I'm not going to read it all out, but I think there are some things in there that are important to cover. You might be interested to know, for example, that she'd only moved into that apartment in August. The murder, of course, took place at the beginning of October. And she'd only been in her new job for a few months, so we think she actually moved there so that she could walk to work. She got paid £4.25 per hour as a chef. She got paid weekly, and she normally got paid on a Friday. And she had, in fact, taken out um, a chunk of her pay at two in the morning on the Friday, so basically two hours after the pay went into her account, she'd withdrawn some. And she says to police that she probably had about £150 left the following day, but she couldn't find it in her handbag. So if that's to be believed, she had that money when she couldn't pay for the taxi, and she had that money when they were begging for money for Chris's bus fare, and she had that money when she killed Melanie. We also discovered that she was in quite a bit of debt. She was overdrawn on her bank account by £1,000 and she was also in rent arrears of £1,000 and apparently she was planning on moving out and we know that also from Claire who had offered her her spare room. She did supplement her income by selling cannabis so she would buy a certain amount, smoke so much for herself and then she would sell the rest of it and she said she could make about £300 profit from doing that. So the night before she was round at Clare, she went there about six o'clock. Apparently there was about five people there, including her partner, our casual boyfriend, Chris Taylor. She says that she smoked some cannabis and took tomazepam. Round about ten o'clock that evening, she went out to the fish and chip shop and got some fish and chips and returned to Clare's house and they left round about two o'clock in the morning. So she explains in the dock that... She did indeed go past um, some cash machines and tried to withdraw money and couldn't get any money out. And then QC Edward Targoski starts asking her about what they did when they got back to her flat. Now, to spare you the monotony of my voice reading both parts of the transcript, I've enlisted a kind volunteer who will read the parts of QC Edward Targoski and Advocate Deputy Neil Brailsford. I will read Pamela Gurley's parts. I will paraphrase sections because sometimes it can take several pages to establish one small point, but I won't change the meaning or outcome. So we'll start with Pamela's new version of events and what she says happened when they went downstairs and pushed their way into Melanie's room. What did you do? He kind of moved me in hand signals to knock at the door. Right. Which I did. It it took her a while to answer. Right. But when she came, Chris pushed me aside and made his way in and pushed her in. And he went into the flat. Is that correct? Yes? Yes. And did you follow him? Yes, I did. Right. 
And what did you think was going to happen when you were in the flat? I just thought we were going to rob her. She then explains that there was no pre-planning and Melanie was wearing a nightgown when she answered. And what happened then? She said if we wanted money, there was money in her wallet on the table, so I went over to the table. Right. And by the time I looked back, Melanie and Chris were struggling. He was going at her with the knife from side to side. Could you indicate to the ladies and gentlemen of the jury as to how it was? Like that. So you're indicating with your right hand a slashing motion. Is that correct? Yes. She goes on to say that he pushed Melanie up against the wall and banged her head, which caused a thud. After that, they started struggling again, and Chris was behind her with the knife, and then she fell to the ground. This is a good moment to remind you of the forensic evidence. The blood from Melanie's throat being slashed was all low level. She was either crawling or lying, and it's thought her head being banged against the wall was also low level because there was hair and blood found. Now, Chris Taylor's over six feet tall and Melanie less than five, and Pamela is claiming it all happened standing up, which doesn't fit with the forensic evidence, as there would be blood spray at higher levels. Chris Gannicliffe, the lead forensic scientist, also said the blood on Pamela's clothes shows she was having protracted intimate contact while Melanie was bleeding. It was clear from the nature of her throat injury that that was so significant and the blood loss would have been so great from it that you would see it elsewhere had that been sustained, elsewhere in the room. So that clearly had been sustained when she was down within the duvet, uh, very much the, the last in the sequence of events. But her explanation in the witness box was this. As far as Melanie was concerned, did you go over to look at her or what did you do? I went over. Right. And I picked her up and turned her round. And so you turned her over and what did you find? There was blood everywhere and her throat was cut. And what did you think? I was scared. She then tells the court she took the wallet, CD Walkman and keys and they went upstairs. She said Chris washed the sleeve of his jacket. She got undressed, washed and gathered her bloodied clothes and the knife together in a pile. They then had sex and went to sleep. And in the morning you already know they walked up to the main street for him to get a bus but he ended up walking as they had no money. She tells the court they were pretending to have no money and that's why she asked someone for Chris's bus fare. It's not disputed she used Melanie's card and spent the voucher late that morning when she was with her parents, but what isn't known is Pamela claimed she deliberately used them so she would get caught. She said she was going to give Melanie's bank card to Chris after using it, but later decided to throw away the bank card and keys because she got scared. She claimed her multiple confessions once she was caught to the police, her mother and friend Claire were all lies as she was taking the blame for Chris. Now, surely you must have thought that that was going to get you into considerable trouble. Far worse than... I thought by lying to them, they would clearly know something was wrong, that that I didn't do it. In other words, if you told them that something that wasn't correct, they would be able to spot it as not being correct. Yes. She gives an example of... She told police that Melanie's keys were on the outside of her door. She told the court that wasn't true because I wouldn't have knocked if they'd been there. She was then asked by Judge Lord Marnock. Could you explain why they would have known that was a lie? Because she was lying at the front of the door 
I mean, obviously she'd answered the door to someone. During cross-examination the following day, Advocate Depute Neil Brailsford questioned her about the neighbours hearing noises at around 8.40am. She claims they must have been mistaken, but admitted she was in Melanie's flat stealing things after she'd returned. She says she has no recollection of Melanie screaming or making a noise during the new time of the attack at 3am. So you say that here is a man that you've just seen murdering someone, who you were scared of, and yet you chatted to him, had sex with him, and then went to sleep with him. I didn't know how to react to him. He also quizzes her about her motivation for changing her story. She had claimed that it was because Chris was living scot-free and the trial felt more real as it drew closer. But the AD suggested it was because the medical assessment and CT scan results had come back. And I think it was after you reviewed the results of the CT scans that you decided to change what you were going to tell the court. Is that right? Yes, it would have been around the same time. He concluded saying, The reality is, Miss Gourley, that the version of events you gave in court yesterday were not true. That's not true. The truth is that at or about 8.40 on the morning of the 9th of October last year, you went down to Melanie Sturton's flat and you murdered her. That's not true. So I hope that gives you a greater insight into more of the evidence that she gave on the stand that day. Obviously, it was much, much longer, but I have covered the main points. Thank you very much for listening to this special extra bonus edition of The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul. My name is Isla Traquair, and if you like this podcast, please go to iTunes and rate and review, and there's lots more information on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.